Wisdom from Above with Dr. Harlan Betts. Greetings, my podcast friends. Welcome to Wisdom from Above, where we go beyond the reasoning of man to the revelation of God. We are unpacking the meaning of the book of Revelation. And this episode is entitled, Dedicated to the One I Love. That might make you think of a song from the good old days. But this is going to be a little bit different. In order to get the most out of this study, we must go on a spiritual pilgrimage. We must transport ourselves in our minds to that Roman penal colony in the Aegean Sea. We must join the beloved disciple John in his exile on the island of Patmos. We must think about the times in which he was living. We must read this prophecy to hear what John heard. We must read this prophecy to see what John saw. We must seek to understand what these words and these visions meant to John and to the seven churches and to us. Billy Graham suggests that at first it had been safe and simple to be a Christian in a world dominated by the Roman Empire. Under the Pax Romana, the church had spread. But toward the end of the first century, all benevolence had ceased. Rome was losing her grip on the world. When protest and rebellion followed, Rome answered with the sword. It was no simple task for Rome to maintain an empire made up of so many differing races, religions, and cultures. Nationalist movements, political conspiracies, terrorism, and open attack grew until the empire was threatened from within and without. And out of the emperor's growing paranoia to maintain Rome's power and keep her subjects in check, one simple test of loyalty evolved. On certain feasts and holidays, row upon row of subjects lined up to walk past the area's Roman magistrate, toss a pinch of incense into the fire in the golden bowl at his feet, and mutter, Caesar is Lord. Most citizens of the empire were glad to pay tribute to the emperor and to the empire. But for the Christian, another loyalty oath was at the center of his faith. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And because of their refusal to put Caesar before Christ, Christian believers began to be persecuted. Some were dipped in tar, lifted up on poles, and lit on fire to provide light for the Roman leaders. Some were beheaded. Some were cast into dungeons. Some were thrown into the Colosseum to fight the hungry lions for the cruel entertainment of Roman citizens. Paul was beheaded with the Roman sword. Peter was crucified upside down on a rough wooden cross. John's own brother James was beheaded by Herod Agrippa. Mark was dragged through the streets of Alexandria and his body bruised and still bleeding was burned. 
unconfirmed news of the deaths or disappearances of John's close friends and co-workers must have left him lonely and even more fearful for the future of the churches they had planted together. Imagine a village in the suburbs of Ephesus or Laodicea. Christian believers are at work tanning leather, dyeing cloth, harvesting crops, raising families, studying math and history, at worship, at work, or at play. Then suddenly, hoofbeats are heard clattering up the nearby cobbled streets. The horses are reined in by a Roman centurion and his honor guard. A leather damp table is unfolded. An incense burner is placed on the table. A flame is lit. Heralds sound the trumpets. There is no place to hide. No time to decide. Believers must join their neighbors in that line. Just ahead, the village mayor tosses his incense into the flames and exclaims proudly, Caesar is Lord! Others follow. Will the Christian avoid the conflict and protect his life by saying Caesar is Lord? Or will he take a stand for what is right, courageously refuse the incense, and boldly proclaim Jesus is Lord, and then pay the price for disloyalty to the emperor? Who knows? Perhaps it was in just such a line that John, surrounded by his neighbors and friends, failed the emperor's test, and in punishment, was exiled to the island prison of Patmos. It was not easy to be a Christian then. It's not easy to be a Christian now. It was difficult to keep the faith then. It's difficult now. There are grand and awful moments before a centurion's blazing fire. And there are awful moments almost daily when one longs to give in to the values of this world, to give up the high standards of our Lord, to give way to the various temptations that pressure every man, every woman, every young person who believes. Many of those believers in John's day were probably wishing that the Lord would come back and set this world right. Many were probably praying that the Lord would come back and punish all demonic despots, Rescue all persecuted saints. Many of them probably longed to hear about the end and be assured that God would right all wrongs and lift up those who are persecuted for taking a stand for Christ. And John has just such a message to deliver. And it is to believers like these that John addresses the book of Revelation. God has shown him some incredible scenes and some awesome animals, some encouraging visions. But before he shares the revelation, John addresses these dear Christians. John seeks to turn their eyes to God as he highlights the major message of the book of Revelation. First, we see the writer in verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. John, the beloved apostle, the exiled prophet, the aged prophet. And the readers, the churches that are in Asia Minor. That is, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, 
Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then we see the greetings in verses 4 and 5. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits are before his throne. Grace and peace. Grace is the Greek greeting. Chaireta. Peace is the Hebrew greeting. Shalom. Grace is undeserved favor from God. Peace is undisturbed calm with God. Grace is extended to the worthless. Peace is extended to the restless. Grace includes resources and riches from God. Peace involves security and safety with God. So he wishes them grace and peace from him. And he goes on to describe the Father. And then from Jesus, and he describes him. And the Spirit, he describes him. So let's look at that. What in the greeting is grace and peace? Whom, from whom, is the one and only true and triune God? One God consisting of three persons. God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. From God the Father, who is eternally self Existent. Notice as he says, Grace you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. He is present, he was past, he is to come, future. He's eternally self existent. And then he says, And from the seven spirits who are before the throne. Seven, as we mentioned in an earlier podcast, is a number of completeness and perfection. Isaiah the prophet, in the Old Testament in chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, describes the Holy Spirit's completeness and fullness and perfection with this sevenfold description. The Holy Spirit is one, the Spirit of the Lord. Two, the spirit of wisdom. Three, the spirit of understanding. Four, the spirit of counsel. Five, the spirit of power. Six, the spirit of knowledge. Seven, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Thus, the seven spirits of Revelation 1-4 are a symbolic reference to the Holy Spirit in his fullness, his completeness, and his perfection. And then we read, as we go on in verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who has loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and made us the kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. So the third is this God the Son. From God the Father, who was, who, who is, who was, and who was, is to come. From God the Spirit, the complete, full, godly, God the Spirit, 
revealed in seven ways in Isaiah, and from God the Son. He talks about his person, his position, and his power. His person, the faithful witness, a prophet, a revealer. What he says is authoritative and accurate. What he says is true and reliable. His word is sure and certain in a world that is chaotic and confusing. His word is trustworthy and true in a world that is deceitful and false. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. His word is truth. He is the faithful witness. But then it goes on to talk about his position. He is the firstborn of the dead. This refers to him as the priest and redeemer. Jesus died, was buried, and on the third day he rose up from the dead. Now others had been risen by God before Jesus, but they died again. Jesus was raised to eternal incorruptible glory. His resurrection is a guarantee that all who believe in him will be raised from the dead to enjoy eternal life. So he is the firstborn from the dead. Then it goes on to talk about his power. He's a ruler of the kings of the earth. A king and a ruler. Jesus is called the ruler of the kings of the earth because he is the sovereign ruler of the universe. Throughout history, kings rise and fall under the sovereign hand of God. One day soon, Jesus will come back in power and great glory to rule and reign as king of all kings and lord of all lords. So he is prophet, priest, and king. He is redeemer, revealer, redeemer, and ruler. And we receive grace and peace from God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. This gracious grace, this peaceful peace, cannot be found from man. They come only from God. There's no amazing grace apart from God, and there's no lasting peace apart from God. And then we come to the dedication To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. You see, this is dedicated to Jesus Christ. This is dedicated to the one I love. That's basically what the beloved Apostle John is saying. This is dedicated to the one I love. To Jesus Christ who loved us, who loosed us, who lifted us. Let's take those one at a time. First, he loves us. Literally, he keeps on loving us in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our selfishness, in spite of our stubbornness. A man who had become a minister told this unforgettable story of his rebellious university days. He was a student at England's Cambridge University when D.L. Moody was invited to speak to the students. He and a number of other students were furious that such a distinguished institution as Cambridge would invite Moody, an unschooled American preacher, to give a lecture. Moody slaughtered the king's English so badly that he is said to have pronounced the word Jerusalem in only one syllable. The night of Moody's appearance, 
the group of rebellious students sat in the very front row, waiting for just the right time to humiliate Moody with jeers and mocking. Just before Moody was to speak, the great gospel singer and composer Ira Sankey stood and sang. As he sang, the restless audience grew quiet and respectful. Immediately after the song, and without any introduction, Moody stepped up to the platform, pointed his finger at their young men in the front row, and said, Young gentlemen, don't ever think God don't love you, for he do. It was perhaps the most ungrammatical sentence ever uttered on the Cambridge University campus. Yet there was such power in Moody's face, in his voice, and in his straightforward declaration of God's love, that the young men in the front row dared not jeer and mock as they had planned. Moody went on to speak of the love of Jesus for a lost human race, a love that compelled Jesus to go to the cross and die an agonizing death in our place. In the course of his talk, he repeated those ungrammatical but awesomely powerful words. Young gentlemen, don't ever think God don't love you, for he do. Concluding his reminiscence of that meeting, the minister said, In those moments, I saw myself in a different light. By the end of that meeting, I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. Well, that is how God wants us to see ourselves in relationship to Jesus Christ. He loves us. He loves you. He loves me. In spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our selfishness, in spite of our stubbornness, He loves us. When the truth and reality of His love sinks into your heart, your life will be transformed. He says He loves us. He says He loosed us. Literally, the epistle, the, the, the passage says, He washed away our sins by His blood. The blood of Christ has been ripped out of some churches and out of many hymn books, but it's still a great theme in heaven. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sins. Some people have been stained by drugs or alcohol dependency. Some people have been stained by selfish attitudes and sexual sins. Some people have been stained by angry tempers and malicious tongues. But the blood of Christ can wash away those sins and purify our hearts and we can stand before God forgiven and cleansed and pure. The old hymn writers were right on target when he wrote these words. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me pure again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He loosed us from the power of sin. Set us free from the penalty of sin. Everyone who believes in him will not perish, but has everlasting life. And then thirdly, tells us that he lifted us. Literally, it says, he made us a kingdom of priests. Ray Steadman, in his commentary, makes this very practical. 
he says. The role of a priest is to bridge the alienation between the people and God, to bring the people near God. In the Old Testament, the priests explained the meaning of the sacrifices, called the people to repentance, and were used to bring people near to God. But today, all believers are to function as priests. Do you ever think of yourself as a priest? It's a high and holy calling given us by Jesus Christ himself. We are to reach out to others in their pain and lostness. We are to explain to them the sacrifice that Jesus made on their behalf. We are to share with them the fact that God loves them and longs to draw them close to himself, to cleanse their sins, and thereby heal their loneliness and alienation. For this reason, Jesus has made all believers, including you and me, to be a kingdom of priests. And then John, as he goes on in this verse, says, To him, to Jesus, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. John cannot hold back his praise. This book is dedicated to one he loves. This praise is dedicated to the one he loves. We should be dedicated to the one he loves, the one we love. And then in the last two verses, we see the central theme of the book of Revelation, the major message of the book of Revelation. Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and they also who pierce him, and all the tribes of earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is coming again in public. It says every eye will see him. Unlike the rapture, it happens in a blinking blinking of the eye and believers just disappear. Jesus is coming in in power. All the earth will mourn in repentance or in remorse. Jesus is coming again in person. The great I am. This was used of God the Father in Exodus 3.14. This name refers to God as the self-existent, eternally present, sovereign ruler of the universe. And Jesus uses the words I am in seven self-descriptions in the Gospel of John and ten times in the book of Revelation. And here Jesus says, I, and only I, am the Alpha and Omega, the Eternal One, the One who is and was and is to come, the Ever-Present One, the Almighty, used nine times in Revelation, the All-Powerful One. Jesus says, I am the Eternal One, I am the Ever-Present One, I am the All-Powerful One. So what have we discovered? Jesus is the central figure portrayed in Revelation chapter 1. In fact, there will be a sevenfold portrait of Jesus' appearance and authority and a fivefold description of Jesus as sovereign and Savior. Jesus is the head of the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And Jesus will issue words of challenge and comfort to these seven churches. 
Jesus is the lion and the lamb in Revelation chapters 4 to 18. As a lamb, Jesus is the only one worthy to implement God's redemption. As a lion, he unleashes the beginnings of judgment and of the tribulation. As a lion, Jesus is the only one worthy to rule the world from the throne of David. Jesus is the coming king in Revelation chapters 19 and 20. Jesus will come back in power and glory. He will wipe out all evil and set up his kingdom. And finally, Jesus is the crowning jewel of the new city in Revelation 21 and 22. He's the Lord, he's the light, he's the life, he's the lamb. So Jesus is the major message of the book of Revelation. Jesus is the central figure in Revelation. The book of Revelation is dedicated to the one who loves us and the one we love, Jesus Christ. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus is coming back. He is coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. He is coming back in power and great glory. Some ask, are we living in the end times? I believe the answer is obvious. Has evil prospered? Yes. Has terrorism increased? Yes. Are the wars all over? Yes. Is Russia growing in power? Yes. Is China growing in power? Yes. Are European nations trying to unite? Yes. Is Israel in the promised land? Yes. (laughs) Is the land of Israel a pivotal focus for the entire world? Yes. Dr. John F. Walford a professor of mine when I was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary, was widely recognized as the most knowledgeable knowledgeable prophecy scholar in the world. And he made this statement about the times in which we live. I've been studying prophecy for many years, over 50. And while I do not believe it is possible to set dates for the Lord's return, I do sense in the world today an unprecedented time of world crises that can be interpreted as being preparatory for the coming of the Lord. If there ever was a time when Christians should live every day as though Christ could come at any time, it is today. And I agree with Dr. Walbert. I pray that all who hear these podcasts will be comforted and challenged by the practical truths we discover in this book. I hope that everyone who hears these podcasts will be challenged to prepare for the coming of Christ. I pray that all who hear will understand that the hour is late and that they will live as though Christ can come back at any moment. There's a story of a little girl who had trouble sleeping one night. Her bedroom was upstairs and her parents were downstairs reading. First, she asked for a glass of water. Then later, she asked for a cookie. And then later, she came down wanting to know what time it was. Finally, her parents' patience ran out, and they warned her to stay in her room and go to sleep, threatening to spank her if she called them again. The best she could do was lie there, watching the ceiling, listening for the striking of the grandfather clock downstairs. When the clock struck 11, something must have gone wrong, because as she counted the hours, the clock struck 11, and kept on going. 12, 13, 
14. <laughs> and when the clock struck 18, she threw win- caution to the wind, jumped out of bed, ran downstairs and cried, Mom, Dad, it's later than it's ever been. <laughs> well, that's what I'm trying to say to you today. Prophetically, it's later than it has ever been. The return of Christ is closer than it has ever been. The stage is set for his return. The message of this book is crystal clear. Jesus is coming again. It may be morning, it may be noon, it may be evening, but surely soon. Jesus is coming again. And I pray that you'll live in the light of his return. Are you ready for that trumpet to sound? For the angel to shout? For Christ's return? I hope you are ready for his return. Well, that's a wrap on today's episode of Wisdom from Above. I look forward to meeting with you again next week as we continue to unpack all the amazing prophecies found in this book. Until then, keep looking up and keep on pursuing Wisdom from Above. <laughs>